Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode number 132 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Trapodi, and with me, as always, is Tony Pauline, and we are now almost a week removed from the completion of the 2020 NFL Draft, and with the dust now settled, it's time to start our divisional breakdown shows, and we're going to begin with the AFC East. Before we get into the teams, though, Tony, any overarching themes kind of stand out to you in this division? I think for the most part, when you look at each team. Each team's draft, and we'll get into this a little bit deeper, has a bit of downside risk to it. Now, there are no real sure things. There are never any sure things. But I think when I really look at each team in this division, uh, there is a bit of bus factor. Absolutely. I mean, whether it be injury issues or just lack of high draft picks or just kind of boom bust type of players. Uh, when I look at it, the one thing that's kind of funny to me is there were 13 quarterbacks taken in this year's draft. The AFC East accounted for three of those, and none of them were drafted by the Patriots. The Jets and Bills both took potential backup prospects. Obviously, the Miami Dolphins took two attack of Tagovailoa, but the one team that, besides Miami, everyone knew was in the quarterback market ended up just kind of ignoring the position entirely in the draft. And it's not a surprise to me. I did think the Patriots would take a, a, or would consider a quarterback in day three of the draft, but I've been saying all along, number one, they like Jared Stidham understandably so. Number two, I think Stidham is a perfect fit for that offense. And number three, the Patriots have always done a great job uh, developing quarterbacks, not just Tom Brady, Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett. You go back to Matt Cassell. So, you know, until they prove otherwise, you got to give the uh, Patriots the benefit of of the doubt when it comes to Jared Stidham. Absolutely. And anybody who listened to us during last year's draft process knows that we were both very high on Jarrett Stidham as a guy who you could take later on and and had starter level traits. Um, You know, we'll see what he can do in New England this year because he's going to be the guy. He's not going to get out, beat out by Brian Hoyer or any of the rookies they signed after the draft. But we'll get into the teams here now. And the first team, we're just going to go in pick order. And that would be the Miami Dolphins who drafted number five in this draft. And they actually had three first round picks. They went with the aforementioned Tua Tagovailoa, Austin Jackson at number 18, and Noah Igbenogany at number 30. That was a bit of a surprise pick. I know, Tony, leading up to the draft, we were talking about corners rising up boards and specifically Igbenogany climbing up boards, but we didn't necessarily have him as a first round pick. We did, though, have Austin Jackson as a first round pick. As much as people aren't really high on him or didn't really believe that he was worthy of that pick, It was kind of a foregone conclusion that he was always going to go there. But, of course, this draft, at least at the top, is always just going to hinge on Tua Tagovailoa's long-term health and also his productivity. Overall, I think Miami did a good job. Overall, I think this this draft has a lot of upside. But you're absolutely right. You know, this draft is going to hinge on Tua. If he's healthy and he's able to play at his upper upper level, this draft will will be looked fondly uh, or compared to fondly to the Dan Marino draft in 83, where the best quarterback fell into the Miami Dolphins' laps. And Tua is, in my opinion, and I'm on my board, the best quarterback in this draft. But that's a big if. You know, Tua staying healthy, showing durability, being able to stay on the field, because he never did it at Alabama. 
I, I'm, I was very happy and satisfied to see the pick of uh, Austin Jackson. As I said, he's one of the best pure left tackles in this year's draft. He does have to get stronger. He does have to be more consistent. And I agree with you about, uh, you know, Igby Nonheen. I, I mean, we talked about the night before the draft. I had heard early second round. Granted, he went late first round, but still, with other, some of the other cornerbacks available to him, I still think that this is a bit of a surprise. Yeah, and Miami also had three picks on the second day, and they used them on Robert Hunt out of Louisiana, Raquan Davis out of Alabama, and then their third-round pick, a guy I know Tony likes and I like as well, is Brandon Jones out of Texas, a safety who's got good athleticism. I mean, he's you can see him running down the field. If you watch the game against LSU, you stride for sire to Justin Jefferson. Uh, Justin Jefferson almost broke 4-4 in the 40s, so Brandon Jones is a guy you could use over the slot. He's a guy you can use as a true free safety as well, so I enjoyed that pick. Uh, Raekwon Davis is a guy we've talked about as, you know, as his sophomore year, he was looking like he was a future first round pick kind of leveled off from there, but Miami's really banking on that level of production here. I mean, obviously six picks in the first two days, specifically the first 70 picks in this draft. I mean, Miami had a chance to really load up on talent. What do you think, or how do you think they did in that term? I think with Brandon Jones, it's just a matter of using him correctly. He's got ex- he's, he's a terrific athlete. He's been a good player for three years. Someone who stood out to me. I think he can play free safety. Raekwon Davis, as you mentioned, it's a matter of getting him back to where he was as a sophomore in 2017. Uh, Miami's got a nice sort of uh, triumvirate of potential at that defensive tackle position with Davin Gacho, Christian Wilkins, and Raekwon Davis. But all three players are guys that really kind of fell off later in the college careers and never lived up to expectation. Robert Hunt was a surprise in the early part of round two. I knew a lot of teams had him graded as a round two prospect, but later, I think the bigger surprise is just about, or I shouldn't say just about every, most of the teams had him graded as a guard. Miami, he was announced as a tackle. Yeah, and that also explains kind of the draft capital that they used on Hunt because if teams are looking at him as a late second, early third round guard and they view him as a tackle, well, that's going to push him up draft boards. Now, in their eyes, they have you know a pair of potential bookend tackles in Austin Jackson and Robert Hunt to surround Tua Tagovailoa to keep him healthy because Lord knows that we need Tua to stay on the field. If you're a Miami fan, you really need him to stay on the field. I mean, obviously it would be great for the league if he were to stay on the field because he is quite the talented player, but Miami understands that and, you know, went out of their way to make sure to insulate him. They also went with a guard Solomon Kinley in the fourth round. So, you know, they drafted three offensive linemen who they're hoping can be potential long-term starters for them to protect their potential franchise quarterback. And you would think that they can be potential starters. Austin Jackson at left tackle. I think Hunt's uh, probably better at guard, but still, if you can start at guard, I uh, started tackle fine. And I think Solomon Kindley has got future starting potential. So I, I think they did a good job with those three offensive linemen. Absolutely. And we kind of teased it out there with Solomon Kindley, but the day three call for Miami, at least in my eyes, was pretty good as well. Besides Kindley in round four, you got Drayson Strobridge and Curtis Weaver in the fifth round. Now Weaver's a guy, another player, kind of like Tony was saying before that, was a little bit better early in his career. Uh, senior year put up good numbers, but obviously a lot of teams were not impressed by the tape. Um, but I mean, for the production you're going to get potentially out of Curtis Weaver and the risk that you have to take, which a fifth round pick is kind of low risk. So you have a lot of upside there, not a lot of risk. And and the same thing goes with Jason Strobridge, who is the kind of three technique tackle that's really going to penetrate the backfield. Miami did announce him as a defensive end. It's kind of got tweener size. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where he fits in on that defense. But I thought those were two excellent fifth round picks for Miami. I mean, you watch Strobridge at the senior bowl. It took half a practice for 
the coaching staff to say, hey, we need to double team this guy and really keep him away from the quarterback. So to get guys who could cause the kind of disruption as pass rushers, whether it's from the interior or around the edge, that Miami got in the fifth round, it's really a huge steal. Strobridge is uh, really a tweeter from the uh, senior bowl practices when we watch him. He's insanely athletic. He's just incredible the way he moves about the field. But as I posted on uh, draft day, when he was selected or when he dropped in the fifth round, as you said, he's kind of a tweener. Doesn't have the size for defensive uh, tackle. And, you know, does he fit a defensive end? It'll be interesting because Miami hasn't listed a defensive end, but they play a three-man front. So, I mean, if it's more of a three-man front with, with a one-gap system where they're consistently putting the uh, linebacker up at the line of scrimmage, almost like a stand-up defensive end, I think Strobridge uh, could produce in that area. I think if it's a situation where he's going to be a two gap, he's going to be a defensive end in a two gap front. Uh, it may take some time. He's got to physically mature. Curtis Weaver, you know, I kind of held back, but I had been hearing in the lead up to the draft that people thought he was overrated. He was not in good shape in 2019, which led to a fall off in production. I think he, uh, the hopes were he was going to show up at the combine at 255 pounds. He was 265 pounds. Uh, Curtis, Curtis Weaver it was absolutely worth a, a fifth-round selection. Uh, it, 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 he's got a tremendous amount of upside. It's, a, it's the uh, situation where the reward outweighs the risk. But Curtis Weaver's got to get his back on track. I think it, it falls on Curtis Weaver. He's got to get in shape. He's got to play to his, uh, his potential, and then Miami will have a steal. Otherwise, Curtis Weaver is going to bounce around the league and will amount to nothing. Absolutely. And, I mean, if you look at this draft as a whole, we just named nine players Miami's first nine picks, and all of them have starter potential in some way. I mean, to get that kind of impact, I mean, you start 22 players on a football field, and to get nine players who could potentially become starters, obviously they're all not going to. Nobody hits perfect like that in the draft. They'd be lucky to get half that many starters. But even then, that's that's a pretty big haul. And then you include their last two picks, Blake Ferguson, the long snapper out of LSU. I mean, you know, say what you want about picking long snappers um, in the draft. It's not quite like picking kickers or punters who probably have a little bit more of a non-understated impact on the game. But then Miami went in the final 10 picks in the draft. They grabbed Malcolm Perry receiver out of Navy, obviously is a quarterback for the midshipmen, but you know, he's a guy, I think he might've been announced as a running back as well. And, and that's, you know, just more players that you can give the ball to on offense that have versatility. You can use him on sweeps. You can use him on reverses. You can get him the ball in the short field as a receiver and he can throw the ball a little bit. So if he has the ball behind the line of scrimmage, defenses need to respect the fact that there's a possibility if someone leaks behind them, that they're going to throw the football. And Malcolm Perry can hit that guy. So it's just more options for Miami. And then you look after the draft. um, They didn't sign as many undrafted players this year as they did last year. Obviously, Preston Williams kind of headlined the bunch last year. And it was just a team lacking depth. This year, a lot fewer UDFAs, especially with 11 draft picks. But the guy that stood out to me was Benito Jones out of Old Miss. Didn't test particularly well at the combine. But on tape, he looks like a guy. He's got some explosion to him. He can penetrate the backfield a little. He can move laterally, even though he's about 316 pounds, more of a bigger guy. But, um, you know, I think, Tony, you probably had a late round grade on him, if I remember correctly. And, you know, that's 12 draftable players here, maybe 11 if you don't count Blake Ferguson, that Miami pulled in here. And, and overall, it's maybe a, more of a quantity over quality haul, but still a pretty good job by the Dolphins. I'm glad to see that they drafted Perry as a uh, running back because I've always had him on my running back board. People say he's too small, but I thought he's better off at running back than he was at receiver because he lacks the height. Now, he, he practiced very well at receiver 
the first day of, of Shrine Game practices, I not only saw it with my eyes, we had Mason Kinsey on this uh, podcast who talked about it. And if you remember our, my report from the uh, combine uh, in which uh, scouts wanted to run him through a battery of, uh, of running back drills at the combine, but the clock was uh, moving towards midnight. Uh, so, so he wasn't able to do it. But the fact is this, he was as effective carrying the ball for Navy as he was throwing the ball. And it's a matter of just getting the situ- putting him in a situation where you're going to uh, get him the ball in space. I think overall, when you look at all Miami's picks, like I said, you mentioned the potential number of starters, and I agree with that. But there's also the downside risk with those guys, whether it be Curtis Weaver, whether it be Strobridge playing out of position, whether it be the injuries with Tua, whether it be Perry Size. Um, when you look at the uh, UDFAs, you know, B- Benino Jones was a guy who, at the end of the 2018 season, was getting third and fourth round grades and seriously considered entering the draft. He entered the season with a fourth round grade from scouts, did not play well, did not live up to expectations, has limitations, falls out of the draft. It's an excellent signing. He's got a good amount of upside, but his game is on the downswing. Bryce Sterk of Montana State, I think, was, was an interesting, interesting signing. He's a perfect fit for the uh, uh, Dolphins system as a 3-4 outside pass rushing linebacker. He had some insane numbers at Montana State. Didn't live up to expectations, even though coming into the season, some scouts stamped him as a potential third-round pick. He's got a decent amount of upside. It's just getting, the, getting back to where he was. Kirk Merritt was also great as a draftable player coming into the season. Former, I believe, Texas A&M transfer. Guy who... Is very athletic, but has never been a consistent pass rusher. Keep an eye on Tyshawn Render of Middle Tennessee State. Uh, we've got a scouting report on him over Pro Football Network. He is a guy. He's tall. He's explosive. He's very athletic. He just needs to physically mature and get some more playing experience. But Tyshawn Render's a guy who I could absolutely see on the practice squad this fall. Now we'll be back shortly to look at the division's remaining draft halls after this word from our sponsor. While the NFL draft is over and live sports are still on hiatus, there appears to be light at the end of the tunnel. But for now, there are still betting opportunities across the landscape. While you're waiting this out at home with us, hopefully not much longer, you can still have some fun betting at betonline.ag. Even without the NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball, BetOnline still has hundreds of places to wager, including their online casino with poker and blackjack. And sports aren't totally done. There's still eSports, American Idol, Big Brother, the elections, the spelling bee, and BetOnline's new $750,000 poker series. Yes, Chris, even with all this home quarantine, there's still fun to be had. So go to betonline.ag and use our promo code, mypod one hundred to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, go to betonline.ag and use our promo code MYPOD100. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Now we'll move here to the only other team that made a first-round pick from the AFC East in this year's draft, and that would be our hometown New York Jets. And that first-round pick did turn into Makai Becton, the offensive tackle out of Louisville. And if you told me going into the draft, that the Jets ended up at number 11 with one of the top four tackles in this draft. I would say they made a very good pick. They stuck to their needs, and they got good value at the position. That being said, Tristan Wirfs went the pick after the Tampa Bay Bucks traded up to make sure that they secured Tristan Wirfs, and both Tony and I did have Wirfs rated higher than back then. I believe he was Tony's top tackle. He was my number two tackle behind Andrew Thomas, who the Crosstown Giants scooped up. 
seven picks earlier. I mean, Becton, obviously, he's 360 pounds, and people are going to focus on that 40 time at the combine. He is a freak athlete for sure. He's a very powerful blocker as well. There is some downside to Becton. Obviously, he may not translate to the left side as smoothly as even somebody like Austin Jackson, who we mentioned for Miami, or somebody like Andrew Thomas, who we mentioned went to the Giants as well. But there's also massive upside in Mekhi Beckson's massive frame. So this is a very good pick for the Jets, who continue to really rebuild their offensive line. I think they signed four or five offensive linemen in free agency, and then they picked up Beckton as well. So they really have a vision there, even if some of the offensive linemen they picked up weren't the caliber of Beckton. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the downside I see with Beckton is trying to force him uh, to the left tackle spot. Now, you know, playing left tackle in the ACC is one thing. Playing left tackle in the NFL is something completely different. Uh, and I think the fact that no minicamp, potentially shortened summer camps are going to hurt Mickey Beckton because a guy like that needs repetition, needs repetition, not only against the top competition that he'll be playing against in the NFL, but needs repetition as far as getting adjusted to the Adam Gase offensive system. Still, he's big, he's physical, he's very athletic, he's got a lot of upside. Uh, their second pick, Denzel Mims. I mean, this could be a home run for the New York Jets. Hopefully, Denzel Mims breaks the streak of what has been a horrendous uh, round for the New York Jets. And this goes back to the days of Bill Parcells. The Jets have basically got a, gotten nothing uh, except for a, a, a few blips here and there. Randy Thomas, um, the uh, Lamont Jordan, uh, David Harris. Uh, and, and I mean, those guys have been very good players, but that's basically been it for the second round of, of the New York Jets since like 1998. Mims, I'm shocked that he fell as far as he did. I, I think it's a situation that people saw Mims on film and then they saw his athletic numbers, which are off the chart. And it's a matter of he's not really near playing to those athletic numbers at, at, on film. And you're really going to have to mesh that together. There's no guarantees. But as I said with Mims, uh, you, you know, a lot of people feel that he is the complete package at the receiver position. A, a, a spot that the Jets desperately needed. Yeah, I mean, in terms of upside, uh, Mims is absolutely a guy who can do everything on the football field. And, and you do see flashes of him with the ball in his hands, moving around like a smaller player, like the guy that he tested to. But there are plenty of inconsistencies on tape that didn't always win at the catch point, has some things that he could feasibly clean up. But considering the Jets got him at 59, I think there were about 10 receivers taken ahead of him, maybe even 11, um, including Dan Jefferson, who went two picks earlier to the Rams. Um, you know, a lot of Jets fans wanted Mims at pick 48. They traded down. Everyone was disappointed. But they ended up getting a guy that we can't say that he was their guy at 48 anyway, but a guy that very well could have been the pick at 48. And again, they're surrounding Sam Darnold with support. Makai Becton, all the offensive linemen they signed, Denzel Mims. You could knock how they didn't take a receiver the rest of the draft, which we'll kind of get to here. But Mims was, as you said, just a home run pick there. And, and hopefully for Jets fans, he doesn't turn into another Stephen Hill, another one of those second round pick busts that, uh, that you mentioned. If you move to the third round, Jets selected Ashton Davis, the safety out of Cal, and Jabari Zuniga out of Florida. Um, I was very high on Zuniga heading into the draft. I had him in my top five defensive ends. So to get him just inside the top 80, to get a guy who can produce off the edge like Zuniga did, to get a guy who's athletic like he did, and you combine those two things with his production, um, that's that's really a great pick. And, and hopefully for the Jets, kind of like the Denzel Mims pick, it doesn't end up like the Florida pass rusher they chose last year, Ja'Kai Polite, who didn't even make it to the opening game with them. Davis is an interesting fit. 
you know, more of a free safety type Marcus Mays contract does run out at the end of the year. But Davis, it seems like they're also thinking they can play him over the slot. They can do a lot of things with his athleticism. Greg Williams has the opportunity to get creative with him. I know, Tony, you weren't the highest on Davis as a prospect, but how do you feel about the fit? I don't, I, I don't agree with that. I really don't like it. And I know what I've been reading about what Ashton Davis can do, but I also know what I've watched the past two years. And he's more of a straight-line type guy. I think he's going to struggle over the slot receiver. I don't think he's got great range. Uh, I thought there were better receivers available to the Jets and better players like Matt Hennessy. I do trust Greg Williams, uh, and I think Greg Williams will put him in a position to succeed, as he will Jabari Zaniga. Now, as I had written about on Pro Football Network the Monday of the draft, the Jets were very high on Zaniga, but league-wide, people think Zaniga's best fit is as a 4-3 defensive end. Jets don't play a 4-3. Zaniga's going to have to stand over tackle, and it's a different ball of wax. You mentioned Ja'Kai Polite. It was a similar sort of situation a year ago with Ja'Kai Polite. Now, Polite had other issues that Zaniga doesn't seem to have, and Zaniga could have entered last year's draft. He decided to go back. And again, I, I think this is a situation where we can go back and forth about Adam Gase, but I trust Greg Williams to get the most from these guys and, and put them in, in positions where they can be successful. Wasn't a fan of the Davis pick because safety is not a real need position for the Jets, although more and more teams are starting to put three safeties on the field. Uh, great amount of upside, tremendous athlete, outstanding hurdler. He's got to become a football player. I think these two selections will come down to Greg Williams trying to work his magic. Absolutely. And moving on to the third day picks for the Jets. They had five of them. LaMichael P. Ryan, running back out of Florida, was the first one with the 120th pick in the fourth round. Obviously, Adam Gase and Le'Veon Bell don't always see eye to eye. P. Ryan isn't a guy who necessarily projects as a future starter, but he's a solid back. He can catch the football out of the backfield. He's not really a speed guy who's going to turn the corner or break big plays, but just a solid runner, good vision on the inside, and as I said, can catch the ball out of the backfield. So he's the kind of well-rounded back that you really look to as a solid backup in the league, maybe a guy who can get you know, seven to nine touches in a particular game behind a workhorse back. And then you get to the Jets' two free picks, which they got from trading down for Denzel Mims and then trading out of the third round as well with the pick they got to move down for Mims. That's quarterback James Morgan out of Florida International and tackle Cameron Clark out of Charlotte. We had James Morgan on this podcast, as we've probably mentioned several times since we had him on this podcast. Well-spoken guy, loves the word fantastic. And really, Jets fans should be looking forward to getting him in as a potential backup quarterback. I know a lot of people are surprised he went over Jake Fromm in the draft. We personally are not. And the value of a backup quarterback is that if they get a solid player for the next four years behind Sam Darnold or, you know, if somebody else ends up coming in after Sam Darnold, he'll end up being worth the pick. And then Cameron Clark, just more offensive line depth for a team that continues to build that area of the roster with potential players. I think Perrine's a solid fit for the offense. As you said, he's a terrific pass catcher. I would have preferred a receiver at that spot. I would have preferred Gabe Davis of Central Florida, who went a few slots later. As you said, you know, the Jets come into the draft needing receivers in a draft that's full of receivers, and they leave the draft with only one receiver. I thought this would have been a perfect uh, perfect uh, fit or a perfect place, I should say, to select Gabe Davis, who I think was ridiculously underdrafted. James Morgan, listen, <laughs> I've been saying for the past two months that Morgan was going to be selected somewhere in the fourth round ahead of Jake Fromm. This does not surprise me at all. At the very best, he's a guy who could be a starter for Sam Darnold if Darnold gets, uh, get, gets hurt. I think at the very least, Morgan's the type of guy that if he's developed correctly, 
Jets could use for trade, trade bait down the future, in the future, I should say, and get more in return than what they expended on him in the fourth round. Cameron Clark is a good, versatile offensive lineman, can play tackle, projects to guard. I thought the fourth round was a little bit early for him. I would expect him to make the roster as a utility offensive lineman, uh, which, you know, the Jets need. Absolutely. And Jets did have two more picks. They went with Bryce Hall, the cornerback out of Virginia, and Braden Mann, the punter out of Texas A&M. Now, I know it's hard for a lot of people to get excited about a punter, but most of the players you draft 191st overall don't turn into the next Tom Brady. They turn into guys who bounce around the league and don't make it to a second contract. So to get the guy who is probably the best punter in this draft at 191, Tony, you had mentioned in an article leading up to the draft that the Jets are likely to draft a punter. So that's a situation where if you get a solid starter at a position that does impact the game, that doesn't end up being a bad pick. Bryce Hall is a guy, had the injury this year, missed most of the season, um, but he was a guy coming into the season that you had graded as a third-round pick, and you were low on Bryce Hall. You did not like him as much as other people. There was first-round buzz around Bryce Hall, um, you know, around the media and, and places like that. So to get a guy like that in the fifth round, coming off his injury, it really limits any sort of downside that the pick could have, kind of like we mentioned with Curtis Weaver. And then a couple undrafted guys just to mention before I give it back to Tony. Javelin Guidry is a cornerback, and Lamar Jackson is another cornerback, and they couldn't be different players. Guidry ran, I think it was a 4-2-9 at the combine, but he's only 5-9, whereas Lamar Jackson has great size. He's like 6-2 long, 210 pounds, but he ran a 4-6. So they drafted two very different types of corners there. And they did add another receiver in Lawrence Cager, a bigger-bodied type of guy. Again, not the impact player that many people might have wanted from the draft behind Denzel Mims at the position, but still a guy who could possibly come in and make the roster. Bryce Hall could be the best steal for the, uh, the biggest steal from the Jets in this draft after Denzel Mims. Uh, you know, he's a terrific cornerback. He's smart. He's physical. I think he'll do great under Greg Williams. The issue with Bryce Hall is ankle injury or no ankle injury. He lacks speed. That's a problem. He can be a liability in deep coverage. I think it's an issue of protecting him so you, he's not asked to cover the deep field. But Bryce Hall can play. Uh, he's got the ball skills. It's just the physical ability that didn't match up to the other cornerbacks in this draft, either on draft day or during the college season. So I thought that was a terrific pick. You know, not only did I say that the Jets were going to draft a punter, I said that that punter was going to be Braden Mann. Now, the information that, I, that was fed to me was the Jets were considering using a fourth-round pick on Braden Mann, which made some Jet fans apoplectic about it, taking a punter in the fourth round. I was right on the player. I was wrong on the selection. I mean, they took him in the sixth round. They need a punter. I mean, uh, Edwards is, is obviously not coming back. So this is a uh, they get this guy. They get the best punter in the draft in the sixth round, and he's probably going to be their starter next season. He's got some technical things he's got to work on, but he has an NFL leg and NFL opportunity. A couple of guys stand out to me from the undrafted free agents. I had said uh, on day three that the Jets were seriously considering Lawrence Cager in late rounds or signing him as an undrafted free agent. That was the information I had the week before. I just held it to the last day of the draft. Lawrence Cager is a guy who had a terrific season at Georgia until he was hobbled by injuries late in the year. He's a big possession guy. Doesn't have great speed, but he's going to be a real good red zone threat. I also like the two defensive tackles they got. Sterling Johnson started his career at the Clemson, couldn't hack it there, went to Coastal Carolina. He is an explosive defensive tackle that is impossible to stop when he's on his game. The problem is Johnson's not always on his game. He turns it on and off. It's going to be up to him whether he wants a future in the NFL because he has the ability, 
but he doesn't have the motor. Dom Davis of uh, North Carolina Pembroke is a guy who I had highly graded coming into the season. I think he uh, kind of took a step back last year, but again, he's a very explosive, impossible to stop, small school defensive tackle who I believe in a worst case scenario makes a practice squad for the Jets this year. Now move on and, and break down the Patriots and the Bills draft in just a moment after this quick break. And we're back to take a look at the New England Patriots who did trade out of their first round pick. They turned pick 23 into pick 37 and pick 71. And with that 37th pick, they went with Kyle Duger out of Lenore Ryan, the second safety off the board behind Xavier McKinney, did go ahead of Grant Delpit, a guy Tony and I both had graded a bit higher. But in a lot of ways, they're similar players in terms of their athletes. They can, they've shown the ability to be big hitters. They've shown ball skills as well. Duger acquitted himself very well at the Senior Bowl when he went down there in Mobile, arguably the best defensive back at the entire event. And this is a guy who played Division Three college ball. Um, that 71st pick that the Patriots had, they actually used that and picked 98 to move up to pick 60. And it's like Josh Uche from Michigan, another friend of the show, a guy we interviewed over the summer after his productive junior season in a rotational role. It'll be interesting to see how the Patriots use him, but he's a guy who has excellent versatility, which he also showed off at the Senior Bowl. First two Patriots picks were in Mobile this year. He showed the ability in coverage. He showed the ability to scrape as an inside linebacker, and he has obviously shown ability to rush the passer as well. So Patriots got a versatile, versatile linebacker in Josh Uche, in addition to a high upside safety in Kyle Duger with those second round picks. Uh, both guys are perfect. Our system fits. Both guys are very dedicated football players who prioritize the sport. Uh, they've got a good amount of upside. Duger's a guy who can also do some returning for you as a punt or kick returner. He's an explosive game-breaking punt returner. Uh, needs to polish his game. But again, both of them are terrific fits. I thought Josh Uche was going to go a little bit earlier than he did. Terrific pass rusher who also shows the ability to play in space. I think both of these guys, especially Uche, will be productive rookies in the NFL. Now, for all the accolades we're giving New England for their second-round picks, their third-round selections were kind of head-scratchers. Uh, Anthony Jennings out of Alabama at 87 overall. The Patriots continue to pick up Alabama players in the draft. He's a guy, not the most athletic guy off the edge. will be interesting, again, just like with Uche, very interesting to see how the Patriots use him. He is their kind of player, though, but a lot of people, and I know Tony agrees with this, a lot of people had him as more of a third-day pick Then. New England doubled down on the tight end position for the first time since Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. They drafted Devin Asiasi out of UCLA, who I wouldn't say he was overdrafted in terms of the pick he went, but the fact that he was the second tight end off the board, he was in neither of our top fives before the draft, was a little bit surprising. And then they went with Dalton Keene out of Virginia Tech, an early entry into the draft who most people didn't even know about until he blew up the combine. Obviously, that really moved him up on New England's board. Asiasi is more of the three-down tight end type, whereas Keen is more of the H-back move tight end type. So I think New England here is trying to kind of replicate what they were able to do with Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, obviously just on a much lower level. You know, I, I thought that as well, but I really thought that Adam Troutman would have been the better selection if you're trying to duplicate that than Asiasi, who I had as, graded as a fourth-round pick. I could understand the Keen or the love for Keen or, or selecting Keen in round three because of the fact that he's a terrific athlete and he's just scratching the surface. I mean, you look at Keen, I think he's, what, 250 pounds? And he looks like he's 225, and he moves like he's 225, and he's a terrific pass catcher. I think part of the problem has just been a, a, a Virginia Tech uh, program. 
that's been really down the past couple of years. Uh, but he's got a great amount of upside. And I would agree with you. They're trying to duplicate what they had with Gronkowski and uh, Hernandez. The Anthony Jennings situation uh, selection, you know, I, I don't understand. I would agree, agree wholeheartedly. I mean, he's not a fast guy. He's not a mobile guy. They got him lined up right now, it seems, on the depth chart behind Brandon Copeland, who is primarily a rush linebacker for the New York Jets. So if they're going to use Anthony Jennings in that sort of mold as a rush linebacker, that may work out for him. But that's the only way I see Anthony Jennings working out the next level because of the lack of speed, the lack of range, basically a, a short area linebacker, if you will. Yeah, he's not going to do much in reverse for you. He's not going to really do much in coverage, whereas obviously Josh Uche, who they took 27 picks earlier, has the athleticism and showed the ability to do that as well. Now, New England did not have a fourth-round pick in this year's draft. They had five picks on the third day, and I'm going to group them together here in the sense that they chose three offensive linemen, Michael Onwenu out of Michigan, Justin Heron out of Wake Forest, and Dustin Woodard out of Memphis, who, if you have been listening to us, we talked about Dustin Woodard in our last show before the draft as a guy who was rising and could be a potential seventh-round pick. And there he goes to New England in the seventh round. And they're just really fortifying the interior of their offensive line here. Onwenu is a very powerful blocker, a guy who wasn't as highly touted as his teammate, Ben Bredesen, who went a little bit earlier in the draft. But when you get into the fifth round, you can take a kind of one-dimensional, small-area player like him and really do a lot with him. Justin Heron is really the interesting pick here in terms of the potential upside that I think he brings to the table as a tackle in college. could probably use him at guard here as well. I'm not sure what New England plans on using him as in that situation, but you know, Heron's a guy that definitely has some upside, even if he did struggle at times in Mobile. And then, Tony, I'll let you kind of go in on the Woodard pick as well. You know, the, the thing is, is the, the – there's such a contrasting style between a Wenyu and Justin Heron. I mean, a Wenyu is a powerful small area blocker who, once he gets his hands on opponents, that's it. Game over. He just buries them. The problem with a Wenyu is he's probably too big. He needs to lose about 20, 25 pounds, if not 30 pounds, which would improve his conditioning and, and improve his range. Whereas Heron is your prototypical zone blocking lineman, was outstanding in 2017 at left tackle, for Wake Forest, a little bit small, uh, hurt his knee, I believe, uh, early in the 2018 season. Maybe it wasn't camp. I need to be checked on that. Came back and had a solid year this uh, in 2019. Does have some limitations. Guy get a little bit bigger and stronger, which is not a problem for a one you, but he moves very, very well on his feet. Uh, so the contrast in those two guys were incredible. Dustin Woodward is more like Justin Heron, a little bit smaller. In fact, he's kind of short. Uh, but someone who's mobile, who can get out and block on the second level, he's got to get stronger, just like Justin Heron. He's got to add a little bulk to his frame if he can, because I don't think he's got great uh, growth potential. But again, uh, you know, someone who it, you would use in his own blocking scheme. Cash Malaye, I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly. Uh, I, when he was selected, I had a laugh because not only did we have him graded or did I have him graded at Pro Football Network, I also had a report on him. And this is the kind of guy that the Patriots, you know, find in the last rounds. And he's primarily selected for his special teams ability, for his ability on coverage units. And that's the type of player that Malaya is. He's got size limitations. He's not the fastest guy, but he plays like his hair is on fire. So if he makes the roster, it's going to be as a coverage units demons. And he has all the makings to be that uh, at the next level. 
Now, the Patriots did have one more draft pick, and it was Justin Rohrwasser out of Marshall. I may have butchered his last name a little bit, too, but so be it. They took him 159th overall, which, Tony, he wasn't even ranked on your kicker board. So I'm not, I'm not sure we really uh, need any more information than that to kind of know what you think about him. But then if you look at some of the UDFAs, they did pick up two quarterbacks after the draft, even if they didn't draft one, Brian Lewerke and Jamar Smith. And kind of like you were saying with Onwenu and Justin Heron, these guys couldn't be more different. Lewerke is a pocket passer, doesn't have the big arm. Guy a lot of people were high on, but he just never really took his game to the next level for the kind of player he is as more of a game manager. And then Jamar Smith has a big arm. He can make plays with his legs as well. So he's more of the athletic type of quarterback. Obviously, these guys are most likely practice squad players anyway. And then there were a couple other notable free agents as well. Trayvon Hill out of Miami, the pass rusher formerly of Virginia Tech, who had some issues there, ended up at Miami, just really didn't live up to expectations for the Hurricanes. Miles Bryant, a guy, again, like Cash Malua, really a guy who's going to be a special teams demon, even if he doesn't really have a position on defense, whether it's safety, whether it's corner, doesn't quite have the athleticism for corner or the size for safety. But again, special teams will be the place where he can make an impact and possibly make the roster. And then J.J. Taylor, a guy that we were talking about in one of our shows right before the draft that some teams had a fourth round grade on him. Um, those teams obviously felt like they didn't need a running back or maybe they addressed the position elsewhere because he fell out of the draft. He's only five foot five. He's extremely small, but he can catch the ball out of the backfield quick in and out of his cuts. Uh, so he's, you know, probably not going to make a huge impact at the NFL level, but an interesting name nonetheless. They signed a ton of undrafted free, uh, free agents. Miles Bryant is a perfect fit for the Patriots. I could see him making an active roster as a fourth safety, as a guy who's put on the field, put over the slot receiver, special teams, uh, coverage units guy. So that is like a, uh, a duck in water, that selection. Uh, Nick Coe was highly rated at, at times uh, by a number of people, was miscast as a uh, linebacker. Uh, Tizino of San Diego State was a guy who considered entering the 2019 draft. He's a smaller interior two-down defender. Was never a big fan of uh, J.J. Taylor, as you mentioned. People were talking about him in the third, fourth round. I had him as, as undrafted. Isaiah Zuber, uh, the receiver from Mississippi State, actually came in this season with a late-round grade uh, when he played at Kansas State uh, the prior two years where he's very productive as a pass catcher and a punt returner just fell off the ledge last year. I mean, absolutely did nothing at all, which was kind of shocking. Uh, and that could be a, a fine. Uh, Dijon Harris, the linebacker from Arkansas, basically he has the speed that Anthony Jennings doesn't have. Uh, that'll be interesting to, to watch. Trayvon Hill, you mentioned. Uh, if there's a team that can get the best out of Trayvon Hill and can put him in a position where he can succeed, it is, in fact, the New England Patriots. Now we'll move on to our final team in the division, and that is the Buffalo Bills, who did not have a first-round pick in this year's draft thanks to their trade for Stephon Diggs. They did have a second-round pick, though, and that second-round pick was a guy who many people had in the first round before the combine, and that's Iowa's A.J. Epinesa. Now, people were very disappointed with his workout numbers, but if you watch him on film, he was never the guy that was going to win only with athleticism. He's a very technically sound player. He can defend both the run and the pass. And even after his combine, even after people said, oh, maybe he's not a first-round pick anymore, I don't think anybody expected him to fall out of the top 40 or top 45 picks. The Bills end up getting him at number 54. And, I mean, that's a big steal. I was talking to uh, WGN in Buffalo the week of the draft, and they asked me about edge rushers. I did not mention A.J. Epinesa because there was not one 
piece of me that thought he was going to be available for them. So good for Buffalo getting a guy who is a first round talent on film alone late, late in the second round. I mean, the thing is, is I, I never thought that AJ Epinesa was an edge rusher. And I've said that time and time again, which I think is one of the reasons why he fell because he's not a pure edge rusher. The other reason why he fell is, and we mentioned it on this podcast, and I said that there were some teams that gave him a second-round grade, is there was a lot of concern about his testing marks at the combine. He wasn't fast. He didn't jump high. But the fact is this, is Epinesa plays like he's got a chip on his shoulder. He's a solid pass rusher. He's also solid against the run. He's a complete three-down defensive end. And if he had a chip on his shoulder playing at Iowa last year, what kind of a chip is on his shoulders is he going to have being the 54th pick of the draft when most people thought he would be a first-round selection? Absolutely. And, and the Bills went and addressed the skill positions with their next two selections, Zach Moss out of Utah at number 86 in round three, and one of Tony's favorite players in this draft, Gabe Davis, out of UCF at number 128 in the fourth round. I mean, you look at Zach Moss. I mean, his film is that of a second-day pick. Absolutely. He can catch the ball. Uh, he's a very good runner inside. He has enough athletic ability to make some plays otherwise, but the injury history with Zach Moss is really, really just it, – it's, it's added up over the years, and it makes him kind of a risky pick in the third round, but he's a good partner for Devin Singletary. He's the bigger back compared to Singletary, who's a bit smaller. He's also a better pass catcher than Singletary. So, I mean, in my opinion – if Zach Moss can stay healthy, he ends up as this team's lead back and Devin Singletary takes more of a secondary role eventually. Gabe Davis, I'll let Tony kind of go deep on Davis because his love for him truly does run deep. But to get a guy like this in the fourth round who makes plays down the field like he does, even if he only ran a 4-5-4 four, four at the combine, which obviously concerns some teams in terms of he wins down the field, so you want him to run a little bit faster than that. But the size he has, I think he's about 213 pounds. He uses that to win as well. But, Tony, I'll give it to you on Gabe Davis from here. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, he's not the fastest guy in the world, but he's a good vertical receiver. He's not the sharpest route runner, but he gets separation. The guy's done nothing but dominate the past two years. And I think it's a situation where there were more athletic receivers, but you watch Gabe Davis. I, I mean, you'll watch the, the first half of that Stanford game. And he didn't have to play the, the second half because he dominated so much the first half. And that's what Gabe Davis did week in and week out. And as far as I'm concerned, there's absolutely no reason why he shouldn't have been a top 75 pick. I think this is an absolute steal by the Buffalo Bills, as was uh, A.J. Epinesa. I think he's going to be an outstanding player at the next level. And I think Josh Allen has got to be incredibly happy. Uh, not only with this pick, but for the trade with Ste for Stefan Diggs before the uh, draft, they have remade their entire receiver position and, and significantly upgraded it. You know, I agree with you with Zach Moss. Zach Moss, as far as I'm concerned, was taken two uh, rounds too early. He's got great physical skills, but he just can't stay healthy. And for a guy that's what 215 pounds, that, that's that's a dangerous intangible. Uh, I think he'll be a good rotational back, but he's got to show some durability. They selected Jake Fromm of Georgia in the fifth round. I've read all week, why did Jake Fromm fall? You know, it was a travesty. Listen, Jake Fromm was a solid college quarterback who just does not project well to the NFL. I, we've said it on this podcast. You can read it in my report. He doesn't have a strong arm. He's not very accurate. And I'm not talking about statistical accuracy. I'm talking about the inability to place his throws. He's not mobile. I think the fact is he had uh, 40 yards rushing 
the past three years as a starter at Georgia. Now, you're not expecting Jake Fromm to pick up yardage with his legs, but 40 yards rushing also tells you he's lost a lot of yardage because of sacks. And don't forget, this is a guy that had uh, Andrew Thomas <laughs> and Isaiah Wilson both first-round picks as his starting tackles, and he couldn't elude defenders. So that tells you something about Fromm's inability to avoid the rush. It's just a matter of he was a solid college quarterback. He doesn't project well to the next level. Smart guy, maybe he becomes a coach, but he's just not NFL caliber uh, underneath center. Yeah, and I mean, Solomon Kinley, too, who you mentioned earlier, fourth-round pick at guard. I mean, Georgia had three offensive linemen taken in this year's draft, and, you know, if – if Jake Fromm can't produce behind that kind of offensive line, well, you're not going to get that kind of offensive line in the NFL. And I think a lot of it with Jake Fromm is he came onto the scene very early, took over for Jacob Eason, and he just never really developed from there because he was maxed out when he was 19. Everyone looks at a quarterback that comes in that early in their career and succeeds and say, says this is going to be the next big thing. But then he didn't get any better, and his physical skills were always kind of limited and that, in the end, limited him here to being outside of the top 150 picks. I, I mean, at best, he's the number three quarterback at the next level. He's a practice squad guy. I'd be surprised if he makes an active roster. There may be a future for him in coaching. I wish him well. It's not that, you know, when you say these things, people say, oh, you don't like the guy. No, I just would just basically saying what we saw on film. And Chris is right. I mean, he had he was terrific when he came in as a freshman, replacing Jacob Beeson, but like a lot of other players that we've talked about, Raekwon Davis, who we talked about earlier, just never really uh, improved from that point, and his playing day, better playing days were behind him. They selected Tyler Bass in the sixth round, who was a top kicker, top place kicker. I would expect Bass to uh, make the roster. Isaiah Hodgkins, another sixth-round choice, the receiver out of Oregon State, went exactly where I thought he should have gone. He's not a fast guy. He's not quick. He can't separate. He made a lot of highlight real type of receptions, which people went gaga over. But he's a guy who really may not have a spot at the next level. He's not as dominant as uh, Gabe Davis. Uh, he doesn't have the speed, obviously, of Stephon Diggs. Uh, maybe he's the number five receiver. As I said on this podcast during the season, as someone told me during the season, the best thing Hodgkins can do is put on 25 pounds and turn him into a move tight end. And then their final uh, selection I thought was an excellent one in Dane Jackson. Jackson's a guy who's got excellent, terrific ball skills. I thought he should have been a, a fifth-round pick. The problem with Jackson is he's just not fast. He ran in the mid-four-fives uh, at the combine. He plays that at speed. So he's someone where you're going to have to put into a position. We talked about Bryce Hall with the Jets earlier. Same sort of situation that he's going to have to play in a scheme that protects him from deep pass coverage because while he's got good ball skills, and he's a physical and smart football player, he'll get torched in deep coverage. And with the emphasis on the pass game in today's NFL, I mean, getting a guy like Dane Jackson at pick 239 is absolute stealing, even if he does have limitations, because you're getting a guy who is just a good football player, kind of like we mentioned with A.J. Epinesa. Maybe there's kind of a theme to the Buffalo draft in some ways there. I mean, getting a guy like that in the seventh round who can be a productive third or fourth corner, those guys see the field a lot. He's going to play snaps, and if he's productive with them, that's going to end up being a great pick. And the same thing with Tyler Bass. I mean, you can make the kicker in the sixth round or punter in the sixth round argument if you want. But again, the player, the skill player, position player that you take at that pick just isn't going to have the same impact most likely as a kicker or a punter if they turn into even an average player at the position. We'll look at the undrafted hall for the Bills here before we wrap the show up. And a guy that, as Tony has said many times on this podcast, the number one senior prospect 
heading into his senior season was Trey Adams. And he fell all the way out of the draft. The Bills scooped him up. Obviously, great size, but he's just not a good athlete. The injuries, again, have piled up with him, kind of like we said with that Zach Moss. But there's no risk in bringing in a guy like that as an undrafted free agent, just like there's no risk taking in a guy like C.J. O'Grady out of Arkansas who had some character issues, but very athletic. When you watch him on film, he's a solid pass catcher. If he doesn't come with off-field baggage, he's probably a fifth or a sixth-round pick. So getting a guy like that after the draft, again, really mitigates the risk. And the Bills also got Mo Barry, the linebacker out of Nebraska, uh, when we talked to Carlos Davis last summer, the guy who ended up being drafted in the sixth round as well. You know, He gave us kind of a little scouting report on Mo Barry. I mean, the guy's fast. He can go sideline to sideline. And again, he will make an impact on special teams, even if he doesn't affect the two-deep depth chart that much. And, and Barry was a guy who coming in the season, scouts thought should be a uh, six-round pick, did not have the senior campaign that he did. Uh, you know, you mentioned the two uh, UDFAs that, uh, that would be the highest rank from the, uh, the Bills signed. I think Antonio Williams, the running back from North Carolina, is an inter- interesting selection. He was really good in uh, 2018, kind of took a step back last year, but I think he could make a roster that keeps five backs. I also like Marquell Harrell. Uh, of Auburn, a guard who I, I think with uh, Buffalo's need on the offensive line, wouldn't be surprised if he makes it as a uh, eighth offensive lineman. That's it for the 132nd episode of the Draft Analysts presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter. We'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back soon to break down the NFC East for all of you out there. But until then, On behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.